Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. The author and perfecter of faith. 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has come and accomplished our redemption. He has died on the cross. He has endured suffering and shame. And yet, Lord, three days later, he rose from the dead. And Lord, 40 days later, he ascended into heaven. We thank you, Father, that he is at your right hand. Thank you for what he has accomplished, has accomplished for us as our forerunner, as the firstborn from the dead, as our eldest brother. Thank you for what we have in him. And now as we seek to understand this passage, we pray that we will follow in his footsteps. We will be just like him. We will emulate him in the way in which he lived his life and in the way in which he put his hope in the things to come. Teach us to be the same way. May we not grow weary. May we not lose heart. Enable us, Lord, to endure just as our Lord endured. And we ask in his name. Amen. In chapter 12, after explaining all of the evidence of the Old Testament saints and how they persevere near death, in the face of death, and until their death, he now tells us and shows us the best example of all of this, which is in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. That is, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is the best example of one who endured until the end who lived perfectly, who glorified God, who obeyed God, who pleased God, his Father, until the very end. And now he is at the right hand of God. Just as the saints of old did, the perfect one, the holy one, the righteous one, God's only Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, he did it in a way that was superior to all the rest. And so after describing all the saints, He's now going to describe what Christ did on our behalf. Because our focus is not on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Our focus is on Jesus Christ. Because He is our Lord and He is our Savior. And He's the one who has accomplished our redemption. And in this way, He is coming back to what He has been doing all along since chapter 1. Since chapter 1, He's been telling us how Christ is superior to the prophets how Christ is superior to angels, how Christ is superior to Moses, how Christ is superior to the Aaronic priesthood, how he is superior to the animal sacrifices, how he is superior to the Old Covenant. He is superior to all of these things, and therefore because he is superior to all these things, our focus should be right on him. We should fix our gaze on him. We should not be distracted by anyone or anything else, but keep our minds, our hearts, our eyes, fixed on Christ and Christ alone. Christ was always the focus of all the saints of the past, the, the saints of the New Testament as well, the Apostle Paul and everyone else. Our author here, he's saying to us that we should also have as our one focus, Christ and Christ alone. No other one, no other person, no other thing, no other God, no other Savior, only Christ. And having said that, notice in chapter 12, verse 1. After explaining, that's why he says, therefore. Therefore, after all of these people of the past in the Old Testament lived by faith, had enduring and persevering faith, he says, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, because we have as examples a great cloud of witnesses, we have many, many and he's using this imagery of the clouds. Many clouds in the sky are looking down, right? They're looking down, figuratively speaking, on the earth, and we can look up to them and see that they are 
looking down at us, all the clouds, the real clouds, the literal clouds. But in a figurative sense, in a spiritual sense, we have a great cloud of witnesses. We have all of these people of the Old Testament, the patriarchs and the matriarchs of the Old Testament, who have already testified, who have already persevered, who have already endured until the very end, and they are there, in a sense, to be examples for us, that's why he listed them all, but in another sense, they are also testifying to the fact that we need to be just like them. We should be just like them. They testify or they witness to that, and they are also, in a sense, observing, in a sense, they are observing and seeing the way that we are living and continuing. And they, like in a race, they are, like as he says in verse 1, run with endurance the race that is set before us. In a sense, that they are observing and cheering us on and encouraging us to press on just as they did. Because whatever is recorded of them was not written for their benefit. It was written for our benefit. Whatever was said of them, it was for our benefit that we might learn from that and emulate the example. For example, it says in Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 4, 22, 4, 22, Therefore also it was reckoned to him as righteousness, to Abraham that is. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Why was it written that it was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness? For his benefit only? No. Not only for his benefit, benefit but for our benefit. It says in verse 24, For our sake also to whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in Him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Jesus was buried, uh, uh, or crucified, buried, and raised from the dead for our justification, for our forgiveness of sins. Just as Abraham believed that, we too must believe it. And Abraham's testimony is there. His witness is there for us to do the same. And we have many of them. He's reminding us also here that since he said there's a great cloud of witnesses, that we're not alone. We often think that we are alone. We think we are the only ones who believe. No one else understands. I'm all alone. I'm all alone in my family. I'm all alone among my relatives. I'm all alone in my workplace. I'm all alone in the school. I'm all alone in my town. I'm all alone in my country. I'm all alone in the world. Nobody else is experiencing what I am experiencing. But he's telling us that's not the case. In terms of the number of people, there are a great cloud of witnesses. Remember, he told us he couldn't tell us about everyone, and he couldn't tell us everything about everyone. He told us that earlier in chapter 11, 11.32. What more shall I say? For time will fail me. Time will fail me if I tell of these others. So, the great cloud of witnesses is not only in the Bible, but throughout history. There are many people who have experienced the same thing that we have experienced. We should not think, we should not falsely conclude that we are all alone in this journey. We are all alone in this struggle. That we're all alone as we fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're not alone. There are many people throughout history and now who experience the same things that we do. For example, notice in Romans 11, we have an example of someone who did think he was all alone. Temporarily he thought that. Romans 11, Romans 11, verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? 
I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Elijah the prophet, momentarily he believed he was all alone. No one else. He should have known better because he did have his helpers to help slay the false prophets and so forth. And he did have Obadiah in the court of, of Ahab. He should have known better. But temporarily, he was thinking about his own woeful circumstances and he thought he was all alone. He said he was all alone. But God, what is the, is the divine response in verse 4? It says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. That's the way it is. That there were 7,000. Now, if you compare 1 to 7,000, that is a lot, right? In quantity, it's good. So there were 7,000 men in Israel who did not worship this idol, the false god, Baal. They worshiped and served the true God just as Elijah did. And this is the way it always is. Verse 5 says, In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time, the time of the Apostle Paul, who lived at least 800 years after Elijah the prophet. In the time of the Apostle Paul, in the same way, at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. The same with us. This is the reason we need to be reminded that we aren't alone in this struggle, in this fight, in this race. We're not alone. There is a great cloud of witnesses. So since there is a great cloud of witnesses, and since they have the same temptations and the same experiences, the same kinds of temptations and the same kinds of experiences, what should we do? According to verse 1, Hebrews 12, 1, let us also, also, notice, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. We, just like they, need to lay aside every encumbrance and sin. Now, when it says to lay aside, this is using the language of having dirty clothes and setting them aside, cleaning up and wearing clean clothes. Lay aside, put aside. There are clothes, or if they are too heavy for the task at hand, if you're wearing clothes that are not proper for the task at hand, then you need to remove them and put on proper clothing in order to handle the task. And in this case, his illustration is a race. If it, you're running in a race, you're not going to wear snow boots, right? In the middle of summer, you're not going to wear snow boots, you're not going to wear a snow coat, you're not going to be dressed like that to run in a race, especially if the race is in the summer. You're not going to do that. You're going to be wearing light clothing, convenient clothing, to help you. So he says here that we need to lay aside those things in our spiritual life that encumber us, that impede us, that are stumbling blocks to us, that make it hard for us to win the race. We have to lay them aside. Now this is a command. It's not an option. It's not a choice. It's a command. Let us also lay aside a command or an exhortation. We must do the same. Just as the others did that, the other saints did that, we also need to consider what are the sins or the encumbrances in our life that must be laid aside, that must be rejected as we pursue this race. This race is necessary, and we must be winners in the race. Who wants to be a loser in the race? Nobody. So if we're going to be winners in the race, we must lay aside every encumbrance in order to press on. In order to press on. That takes determination. It takes praying to God. It takes the filling of the Holy Spirit. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit to convince us and also to empower us to live according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit must convince us and then empower us to live according to the will of Christ. We must do so. So we must pray. We must also have wisdom. How can we have wisdom and know what is a sin and what's not a sin? What is pleasing to God and what is displeasing to God? How can we know 
but by the Word of Christ. We have to know the Word of Christ in order for us to know what to lay aside. If we don't know what's in the Bible, we won't lay it aside. And in fact, death will result. Death and disobedience are the consequences of not laying aside that which we should. For example, he says in Hosea 4, 6, Hosea the prophet says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. If you don't have true knowledge from the word of God, then you have false knowledge and you'll be destroyed for lack of true knowledge. If you reject true knowledge, God will reject us from being his priests. Priests, that is, those who have access to the Bible and explain the Bible to other people. And also, if we forget his word or his laws, God will forget our children. He will forget our children. So we must not lack true knowledge. To be able to properly lay aside every encumbrance and sin. We must have true knowledge. And that is found only in the Bible. So the Spirit of Christ and the Word of Christ are necessary to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Further, in verse 1, when he says we must lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, is he speaking of two different situations or the same situation? When he says every encumbrance, every burden, everything that is a stumbling block or something that's hard in our Christian life, and then he says the sin which so easily entangles us, those sins, sometimes among us, we have the same sins that bother us and torment us, and at other times it is different sins that might tempt you, but not another person so much. Some sins tempt one person more than another person more. And the other person, the second one, might have another sin that tempts him more than the first one. This is the differences in the way sin attacks us. Now, what is he talking about here? It's unclear what actually he's talking about, but I think that the best way or the straightforward way is to just think about sin in general, or sin and its various manifestations. So when he says, every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, an encumbrance or entanglement has to do with whatever the sins are in our life. Whatever the sins are. It could be unbelief, which is what he emphasized in the previous chapter. Instead of unbelief, we should have faith or belief. And that, therefore, show that faith with obedience. That might be a constant problem that we have. And remember, whatever is not from faith is sin. Romans 14 and Hebrews eleven six. without faith it is impossible to please him so we must have true faith true faith in Christ so that might be for us an encumbrance and a sin that easily entangles us it's hard for us it may be hard for us to believe whatever God says to believe whatever the promises are in the, in the Bible to Believe whatever even the warnings are in the Bible. Some people find it easier to believe the promises, and other people find it easier to believe the warnings, and some people find it hard to believe both, the promises and the warnings. But we must believe whatever the Bible says in regard to us, to God, our life. So unbelief might be that sin that easily entangles us or encumbers us. What else may it be? As I said before, it might be that someone is very tempted to get drunk. Another person might be very tempted to gamble. The sins may not be the same from one individual to another individual. Another individual, a third one, a sin might be a sexual sin that he has to constantly fight and resist. It depends from person to person. Sometimes one person might have two or three or five or ten different kinds of sins, and he's trying to overcome them or must overcome them. 
and they are his encumbrances or entanglements. Whatever it may be, we must get rid of them. We must fight them because we are running a race. We are running a race. So whatever the sins are that are tempting us, that are slowing us down, that are preventing us from being winners in the race, correct? We are to be winners in the race. We're not supposed to be losers in the race. Because he, he says there at the last part, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Run with endurance. If we run with endurance the race that is set before us, only then can we be winners. Only then. If we don't endure in the race, if the race is too long, if the race is too hard, if we have too many dirty clothes on us or heavy clothes on us, we're not going to be able to run this race with endurance. If we don't endure until the very end, until the finish line, then we're not going to win. We are losers in the race. Well, he doesn't want us to be losers. He wants us to be winners. Therefore, it takes endurance. Endurance. Remember, we have emphasized from the previous chapter that the saints... They endured in the face of death, and they endured until their death. In the face of death and until their death, lifelong, however long they lived, they endured. But what they endured, we must also endure. Look at chapter 10, Hebrews 10, where he tells us the same. It is necessary to endure. Hebrews 10, 32. 10, 32. But remember the former days, when after being enlightened, you endure a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming shares with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Yes, endurance means enduring the sufferings, the reproaches, the tribulations that come from the world, the persecutions by our adversaries. That will be a part of endurance. Endurance also means that we keep the faith. We keep faith. We do the will of God. Whatever the will of God is, verse 36, when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Having enduring faith means we must do the will of God until the end. If we don't have this kind of faith, enduring faith, we will shrink back to destruction instead of preserving our souls. So therefore, we must persevere until the very end. Turn also to chapter 3, Hebrews 3. Hebrews 3 and verse 14. 3, 14. 3, 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. <coughs> we become a partaker, a true partaker of Christ. We belong to Christ. We're in the body of Christ. We are part of the bride of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. If we endure until the end, then we have truly become a partaker of Christ. If we don't endure until the end, we have not become a true partaker of Christ. Furthermore, chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 9, 6, verse 9. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. 
And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He is confident, seeing the fruit in their life, that they are beloved, they are saved. And he encourages them in verse 11 to remain with the same diligence. Remain with same diligence. Have the same enthusiasm, have the same obedience, the same faith, same assurance of hope until the end. Keep on going. Press on. Don't backslide. Don't fall backward. Don't play around with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Don't do anything like that. Don't be sluggish even. Don't twiddle your thumbs. Don't be lazy. Don't say, well, in the middle of this race, I'm going to take a one-hour nap. I'm going to put up my feet. I'm going to rest in the hammock. I'm going to do something like that. I'm not going to press on and win the race. You cannot do that if you're in a race. If it's a long race, you cannot rest for one hour, put your feet up, and, and, and drink uh, a cold uh, uh, soda or something. You can't do something like that. You can't be sluggish. You have to press on. With faith and patience, inherit the promises. That's the way to win a race. You have to endure. No matter how hot it is, no matter how long it is, no matter how, whether there's a breeze or not, whatever the situation Press on. Get rid of sin in your life and press on with endurance. Endure until the very end. Notice with me also James chapter 1. James chapter 1, where he teaches us the same. James 1, verse 2. James 1, 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Consider it joy, all joy, when we encounter various trials. Why? Because the trials or the tests of our faith produces endurance. And when endurance has its perfect result, we are perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Further, verse 12. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. The crown of life for those who love him. God has promised it, and we are blessed when we persevere under trial. So we should too persevere in this race. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. The Apostle Paul teaches us by his own example. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. And everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. He says in verse 24, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win? Who doesn't know in any competition that one person is the winner or one team is the winner? Who does not know that in a competition? He's telling us, why don't we let the obvious impact us? Why are we not influenced by the obvious? We should. And we should be the winners in the race. And what else do we know in a race? Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Right? They exercise self-control in all things. Runners don't.
Do, do not eat whatever they want to eat. Runners do not sleep whenever they feel like it. Runners do not ignore their body in terms of physical fitness in order to have enough strength in their legs or whatever the other competition is, if it's boxing. Do they, when they box, do they just box in the air? No, they have a punching bag, right? They practice, they use weights, they do all kinds of things in order to strengthen themselves. So self-control and exertion, exercising, diligence, and perseverance and training in whatever they need to do, this is what people do in order to do so to win in a race or win a match. They do this. Now, if we consider they do it for perishable rewards, they do it for a wreath, they do it for some crown, they do it for some award, some trophy, they do it for some certificate, they do it for some gold or some money, they do it for perishable things, right? If they do it for perishable things, don't we run in a better race? Isn't our race better? Isn't our race eternal? Does it not last forever and ever? Will we not be with Christ our Lord, who is our forerunner? He ran ahead of us. We have a better situation because it's imperishable, it's eternal. It lasts forever and ever with God forever and ever. So, he is not aimless. He does not box in the air. He is not carried along day by day by whatever comes his way. He's not like that. He is with purpose. He is with an aim, not without an aim. And that entails his own life. Verse 27, 1 Corinthians 9, 27. I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. His own body, which is an instrument of sin, he buffets it. He maintains self-control. Now, when he says this about buffeting his body or maintaining self-control, he does not mean he starves himself to death. He does not mean that he takes some kind of sharp object or heavy object and beats himself on the back in order to cut himself or to burden himself. Or He's not talking about asceticism. He's not talking about extreme and severe treatment of the body. He's not talking about abusing his body as an instrument of sin. He's talking about using your mind, common sense, self-control, have aim and purpose, and avoid things that cause you to sin. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about maintaining self-control in all things, as he says that he does. Self-control in all things. That's what he means when he says, I buffet my body. So, if it is bad for runners to get drunk, what should they do? Avoid getting drunk. In fact, for Christians, if that was our past, if drunkenness was a pa our, our past, or sexual sin was our past, or anything else was our past, whatever it takes to avoid that is what we should do. Whatever it takes to avoid those things is what we should do. That's what he means by exercising self-control in all things. And why also? Verse 27. Lest possibly, after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. He does not want to be disqualified from the race. He does not want to be excluded from winning the prize. If we do not practice the kind of obedience, the kind of endurance that Christ practiced, then we will be disqualified. Like Hebrews 3.14 said, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. But if we don't hold fast until the end, then we are disqualified. We are not a true partaker of Christ. Now, Christ. Hebrews 12.2. 12.2. Having told us what we must set aside, what we must reject in order to win the race, he teaches us who should be in the forefront of our mind, the forefront of our faith, in order for us to accomplish this. 
verse 2, and that is Christ. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of faith. Jesus Christ. Always, from the beginning to the end of the Bible, everyone who has faith, has faith in Christ. Our faith must always be in Christ. It should not be in ourselves. It should not be in faith. Faith is not in faith. Faith is not in positive thinking. Faith is not in positive confession. Saying good things all the time and having faith that if I say good things all the time, good things are going to happen to me. No, that's not faith. That's not true faith. True faith is fixing our eyes on Jesus. He is the only way of eternal life. No one comes to the Father but through me, he said. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Our eyes must be fixed on Christ, Christ alone, for us to have eternal life. We cannot be distracted. We cannot lose focus. We cannot say that we're going to put some faith in Christ, but then faith in someone else or something else. It cannot work that way. We cannot have our idols set up in our house. We cannot have the mantle of the fireplace and have beautiful idols set up there on the mantle of our fireplace and add Jesus to those idols on the mantle. We cannot do that. Only Christ has to be there. Only Christ has to be our focus. Because pagans and unbelievers and even those in the United States who allow the worries of the world, the temptations of the daily life, the pursuit of riches, the pursuit of possessions, the pursuit of, uh, pursuit of fame and man glory, they let those things be idols in their life and they say they believe in Jesus plus they're pursuing their pleasures and their fun. You can't do that. It has to be Christ and Christ alone. So whatever Christ says about my possessions, whatever Christ says about my family, whatever Christ says about my use of time, we have to fix our eyes on Christ. Christ and Christ alone. When we lose the focus, when it's off Christ, then it becomes the worship of a false god. It becomes the worship of an idol. It becomes a temptation. It becomes demonic and satanic. It becomes natural or, or earthly, natural, and demonic, as James says, James 3, 15. Our focus always, always has to be Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Yes, we do have, very popularized in our culture, this wristband that says WWJD. But let's not take that flippantly. Let's not take that casually. Let's take it seriously. Day by day, we're supposed to fix our eyes on Jesus. What would Jesus do? The Jesus of the Bible. Not the Jesus of pop Christianity, but the Jesus of the Bible. What would Jesus do in any and every situation that I face every day, 24-7? What would Jesus do? What would he think? What would he say? How would he counsel me? Or how would he counsel my friend? in this problem and dilemma. What would Jesus do? That should be our approach. That will show that we are fixing our eyes on Him, truly, in the right and good sense. We must fix our eyes on Him. What does His Word say? What would His Spirit say, according to His Word, about any and every dilemma, any and every decision, any and every friend, any and every enemy, whatever it is that we face every day? What would Jesus do? Think about it, and what would Jesus do about it? Our eyes must be fixed on Him. After all, He is the author and perfecter of faith. He is the author and perfecter of faith. The author, before time began, before time began, it was Christ, along with the Father and the Spirit, who made sure that our faith would exist, that our faith would exist. 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 1, verse 8. 2 Timothy 1, 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us 
and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, from all eternity, and now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Here he says that the work of Christ as being the author of our faith, it actually started by his purpose granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Before the world began, Jesus was the author of our faith. He is the one who determined, along with the Father and the Spirit, who would and who would not have faith. Yes, Christ is the author of faith, and he is the giver of faith. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 25. Matthew 11 and verse 25. After condemning unbelieving cities, he praises God for those who do believe. And he says, 11.25, At that time, Jesus answered and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you hid these things from the wise and intelligent, that is, the unbelieving cities he just condemned, and revealed them to babes, that is, to you and me. Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in your sight. So who is it that hid the truth from the wise, the worldly wise and intelligent? The Father did. And he revealed these things to us, to babes or infants. And it was well-pleasing for the Father to do so. But it was not just the Father. Look at 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal the Father is what He means. So Christ praises God. And he tells us that he, the Father, handed everything to the Son. And no one can know God the Father. In, the, in the, this verse, no one knows the Son except the Father. No one um, knows the Father except the Son. So they are the only ones who know each other in the full capacity, in the true and intimate and omniscient way, in every way. They know each other. But how is it that we can know God the Father? How is it that we can know God the Father? It says in 27, Whom the Son wills to reveal Him. The Son of God is the author of faith in this sense also, that whenever the Son, the Son of God, wants to reveal the Father to us, He will reveal the Father to us. If the Son does not reveal the Father to us, then the Son is withholding faith from us. So it depends on the Son of God. It depends on the Son of God to will, to desire, to give us access to the Father, the revelation of the Father. When the Son of God does that, He's granting us faith. It's this way also in which He is the author of faith. If we're going to know God the Father, the Son has to say yes. If he does not say yes and reveal the Father to us, it won't happen. It will not happen. He's the author of faith in that way too. How else is he the author of faith? How else is he the author of faith? He's the author of faith in that he gives us faith. He gives us as the instrument of us to believe and acquire the benefits of the gospel he grants to us or gifts to us, gives us faith. He gives us faith. Philippians 1.29 For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Philippians 1.29 It has been granted for Christ's sake. For the sake of Christ, 
Faith is granted to us. Faith and suffering are both granted to us for the sake of Christ. In that way too, he is the author of our faith. He begins it, he originates it, and then he gives it to us as a gift. Not only is he the author, but he's also the perfecter of faith. He's the perfecter of faith. Perfecter. Philippians 1, 6. Philippians 1, 6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. The one who began a good work in us will perfect that good work. He will ensure that we endure until the end. The one who started it is the one who will perfect it until the very end. He will make sure that we continue in this faith. Continue until the very end. As it says in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we hear and read of Christ interceding for us. It says in Romans 8, 34. Romans 8, 34. And who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Christ intercedes for us at the right hand of God. If he's interceding for us, he is there ensuring that we who have believed continue to believe until the very end. That's the whole context of, of this part of Romans chapter 8 from verses 26 to 39. The context of this passage of verses 26 to 39 is that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And why is it that nothing will separate us? Because God elected us or chose us and Christ intercedes for us to ensure that we have enduring faith, that we have persevering faith, that our faith will be perfected, that it will come to a time of completion until we meet Him face to face. He is interceding for us. And when He is interceding for us, He's praying for us, therefore, we will succeed. We actually have a personal example of this in Luke chapter 22. In Luke chapter 22, you might remember that Jesus Christ predicted that Simon Peter would deny Him, and He also not only predicted that He would deny Him, but He also ensured to... Simon, or assured Simon Peter that Simon Peter would not deny the faith completely. He would not walk away completely. For example, Luke 22, 22, 31. Luke 22, 31 and 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Simon, this is Simon Peter. Satan demanded permission to sift Simon like wheat. Or we might say to make mincemeat out of him. Yeah, right? This, this is what S Satan wanted to do to Simon Peter. But that's not going to happen, Jesus says in verse 32. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Because Jesus interceded for Simon, his faith did not fail. He did not lose faith. And that's the same with us. He's the perfecter of faith for us. It says there, the author and perfecter of faith. Furthermore, it says in Hebrews 13, Hebrews 13, where he does ensure us of the same. Hebrews 13, 20. Hebrews 13, 20. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us 
that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. There, His prayer of benediction, of blessing, is for the God of peace to be with us. And this God of peace brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. Well, if the great shepherd of the sheep was brought up from the dead, miraculously, will he not do that for us by his power? And it's based on the blood of the eternal covenant. Blood of the eternal covenant. If the covenant is eternal, what we receive initially, will it not stay with us forever? Yes. The eternal covenant will remain with us forever because it's based on the blood of Christ. And because of all this, we are equipped in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. How are we going to perfect our faith? Because God equips us in every good thing to do His will. God works in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. So the Father and the Son are at work equipping us and working in us through Christ in order for us to receive or to give Him this glory forever and ever. How does this happen? Because He perfects our faith. He's not only the author, but He is also the perfecter of faith. Further, in verse 2, when it says He is the author and perfecter of faith, what faith do we mean? Is it the, the faith that we exert in Christ? Or is it the, the faith meaning the gospel? Or is it both? I think he means both. I think he means both. As I've already explained, author and perfecter, in terms of the instrument of our acquisition of salvation, the instrument of acquisition is faith. That's how we obtain salvation. But... What is the faith? Well, he mentions there, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So right there, he summarizes the faith that Christ himself endured the cross, he rose from the dead, and sat at the right hand of the Father. This is what he's summarizing right there. So our faith that we exercise is in the faith which is the gospel itself in Jesus Christ, what he has done on our behalf. So our faith should be in that. He is the one that originates it. He's the one that perfects it. Everything for our redemption is only found in Christ. Now, since that's the case, notice the way Christ approached it. How did Christ approach the things that were necessary for our salvation? Verse 2. He, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Christ kept not the cross right before him, but beyond the cross, he kept the joy beyond the cross before him. Yes, he knew he needed to suffer on the cross, and he did so willingly. No one takes my life away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative, and I take it up on my own initiative. Christ said this in John 10, 17 and 18. He said that he willingly laid down his life. But having said that, what did he keep beyond the cross? What did he keep beyond the persecutions, beyond the sufferings, beyond this crucifixion? What did he set before him? It says it was the joy. The joy. One day we will be with Christ with Christ, who is at the right hand of the throne of God. He kept that before him. He said in Matthew 25, 21, Well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your master. The joy of your master. So just as Christ kept right before him the fact that he would be at the right hand of the Father, that he would be immortal, that he would be one to redeem his people, his bride, his chosen ones, that he would redeem them. He kept all of that before him in order to sustain him through the sufferings, in order to endure the sufferings. That's why it says, 
he was enduring the cross. For the joy set before him endured the cross. What should we do too? We shouldn't say, oh, miserable me. Oh, miserable me. Woe is me. I have to suffer every day. And not look beyond the suffering. Why do we suffer? We suffer because there is something better. We will reign with him. We will rule with him. We will be at the, the side of the Father just like he is at the side of the Father. He is at the right hand of the Father. He not only died, was buried, rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and now he is at the right hand of the Father. Why did the Bible tell us constantly, even in Hebrews, from Hebrews chapter 1 onwards, he's constantly telling us that Christ is at the right hand of the Father. Why is he at the right hand of the Father? He's at the right hand of the Father, and we're told that He is at the right hand of the Father because that is the glorious condition that we will have because we are joined to Christ. That is going to be the glorious hope that we have, the glorious experience we have in hope because He is at the right hand of the Father. We also will be there with Him. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? 1 Corinthians 6, 2 do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Isn't that what Christ is doing at the right hand of the Father? And also, do you not know Revelation 5? Revelation 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain, for you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. What is this? Who did Christ redeem with his blood? Men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Correct? That includes you and me. And he made us to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Well, just as Christ is reigning, we also will reign one day. If we suffer with Him first, in order that we may be glorified with Him. If we suffer with Him, we shall reign with Him. 2 Timothy 2, 11-13. If we suffer with Him, we shall also reign with Him. Re uh, Revelation chapter 2. Revelation 2, 25. 2, 25. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. And he who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with the rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What will we experience if we hold fast? If we hold fast, if we overcome, and how do we overcome? By faith. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world, 1 John 5, 4. If we keep his deeds, that is, obey as Jesus obeyed, he will give us authority over the nations. This is why we will judge the world, 1 Corinthians 6, 2. We will judge the world and we will receive the eternal rewards, the eternal benefits, just as Christ has and he possesses, he will give them to us. Further, verse 3, Hebrews 12, 3. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Consider that Christ, who left his glorious position before the world was. He had glory with the Father before the world was. John 17, 5. And since he had that glory... Consider him that he humbled himself. He was willing to be humiliated, to be reproached, to be persecuted, and to suffer. He is the one who did this. Philippians 2. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, he says. In Philippians 2, 5 to 11. We should have the same, same mentality, the same perspective as Jesus did. He endured hostility by sinners against himself. The one who had a glorious throne before the world was. The one who did not need to come into the world, but the one who came willingly into the world for our benefit. Consider what he endured against himself. 
such hostility against himself. Not only did they say during his life, you are a Samaritan and have a demon. Is he not possessed by the ruler of the demons? Is he not born of fornication? Is he not from Galilee? Is he not from Nazareth? Is he not from some obscure place that no one cares about and knows about? Is he not a blasphemer because he claims to be the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven? Is he not a blasphemer because he claims to be I am who saw Abraham and taught Abraham and they wanted to stone him to death? Is he not the one when they arrested him for no crime in the dark with clubs as though he were a robber with a big gang of people? Was he not mistreated like that and arrested that way? Did they not torture him and torment him all night before he was crucified the next day? Did they not beat him on the face, punch him in the face? Did they not spit on his face? Did they not torture him, put a crown of thorns on his head? Did they not beat him so much that he was weary and exhausted? Did they not do all those things to him? Yes, they did. And finally crucified him, put him to death, put nails in his hands and in his feet, and had him suffer and be tormented in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, with barely anything on. Yes, they did all that. Hostility by sinners against himself. However, did he not overcome? Did he not rise from the dead three days later? Did he not, 40 days later, ascend into heaven? Is he not at the right hand of the Father? Is he not going to come back? Does he not possess an eternal kingdom? Has he not offered this eternal kingdom to us? Yes. And if that's the case, he says here, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Don't say it's not worth it. Don't say there's no benefit. Don't say it's useless. Don't say anything like that. Don't walk away from the faith. Don't give up. Don't blaspheme God. Don't slander God. Don't deny the faith. Don't deny Christ. Don't go away from the truth of the Word of God. Don't say, I'm going to find friends who are going to make me just feel good. I want to feel good every day in a worldly, fleshly sense. No, we don't need to feel good in a worldly and earthly sense with our friends who are headed to hell. We don't need to be dragged to hell with them. No, instead, we should lovingly resist sin, not grow weary, not lose heart, resist sin, and then call them to repent and join us. Are we going to be so weak and so frail that we are going to go along with them instead of teaching them to go along with us? We should teach them to go along with us. It says in Jude 23, snatching them out of the fire. Snatch them. Don't play games with it. Don't play games with them and grow weary. Snatch them out of the fire. That takes exertion. It takes concern. Somebody's about to be thrown into the fire and you're just twiddling your thumbs? You're saying, uh, have a good day? Is that what you're saying to them? Or are you talking to them in a convincing way, with full conviction, teaching them that they should get out before they are thrown into the fire? We must snatch them out of the fire. Did not Christ our Lord also teach us to compel them to come? Did he not say in Luke 14, he says, go out, at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the slave said, Master, what, I, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. So we must go out, we must bring in, we must compel them. Now, by compelling them, he doesn't mean put a rope around their neck or you have a weapon in your hand. He's not saying compel in that way. He's saying speak of the gospel issues with urgency. It's a matter of life and death. Speak of the gospel as a matter of life and death. You cannot play games with it. You cannot be feeble-minded with it, double-minded, unstable in all your ways, 
You have to be convinced that it is true and convince others that it's true with persuasive arguments, with reasoning from the Scriptures, just as the Apostle Paul did, just as Christ did, just as Peter exhorts us to do. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that you have within you with gentleness and with respect. 1 Peter 3, 15. We should contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude 3. This is the kind of compulsion, this is the kind of conviction we must have when we speak to others. Not in the soft, feeble way that we often do. When we are soft and feeble with them, we will grow weary, we will lose heart, we will wonder, is this really true and should I continue to believe it? Or am I just delusional? Am I just deluded and not thinking straight? We will think that because they have strength and they have conviction and they have confidence that we should follow them and give up the faith. No. He says, keep Christ before you. Consider what he endured, what hostility by sinners he endured against himself, and in the same way we will endure it against ourselves. We should endure it against ourselves, not grow weary and not lose heart. No. If we have eternal life set before us, the joy of eternal life set before us, the crown of life which we will receive for those who love Him, then it's worth it. It's worth it. We want that crown of life. We want eternal life. We want Christ and to be with Him forever. Let's keep Him right before us. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Father in heaven, we pray, Lord, that we will be a people that is truly focused on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May we not be distracted. May we not be convinced, despondent, discouraged by the people of the world and the circumstances of the world, the circumstances and temptations that we face. Teach us, Lord, that since Christ endured and he is now exalted, that we should endure and be exalted with him for all eternity. Put this peace, this comfort, this hope set before us. Give us the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. In Christ's name, amen.